Hello, I'm Michelle. And I'm Lucy. Welcome to the eighth episode of Tudoriferous, the fortnightly biographical podcast that examines the lives in the Tudor era. And today, Sir Edward Poynings. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. First, well, first the quiz, but first I have a slight apology. Okay. Yes. In, I've forgotten his name now, John Cabot's episode, I implied that the Icelandic folk would only have had fish and possibly fur to trade. Oh, I remember. Yes. Yes. Just a couple of days afterwards, I was listening to another podcast. Um, I was just about to plug them, but I've forgotten the name of it. Uh, the Renaissance England one. Okay. And she's got a whole episode on Icelandic trading. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, it's not just fish. There's wool, fleeces. Walrus tusks, oh. falcons, and sulphur. Really? Yeah. I thought, that's a wonderful list. I wonder what they use sulphur for. Oh, they use it for lots of things. You can use it as a fumigant. You can bleach fabric with it. Oh. You can use it as a, uh, used to disinfect beer cakes. Oh. And the French used sulfuric acid as a hair colorant. Right. An extremely dangerous one, I would have thought. There's a lot of extremely dangerous ones. Yeah. I'd be very surprised if you've got much of a scalp left after you yeah. use sulfuric acid on your head. Anyway, I apologise to Iceland. Uh, well, I would go out and do the decent thing, but my my gun machine had lost had run out of batteries, <laughs> so I couldn't do it. No. Yeah, I had the idea of going, going off and having a... <laughs> but no, I, it didn't work. Okay. okay, are you ready for the quiz? I quiz think time. so. Let's find out. Quiz. John Cabot. Mm-hmm. Where did Cabot's family move to when he was 10? Oh my gosh. Okay, he was in. <laughs> he fled from there to Valencia. Hmm. Oh, my goodness. I can't fail on the very first one. It's a nice place. I don't know if that helps. He was born in Genoa. <laughs> yeah. They moved to Venice. 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 And then Valencia. <laughs> okay, got yeah. it. I'm yeah, making it up Valencia. Everywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> Number two. What is the name of the line drawn by Pope Alexander allocating land to Spain and Portugal? Tordesilla? Tordesilla, yeah. I keep thinking it sounded like a tortoise. I think it sounds like tortilla. Oh! (laughs) (laughs) A mixture of the two. Number three. How much of a cut was Henry to get from any discoveries? What fraction of the amount? Five percent? No. You've sort of remembered right, but you've remembered wrong, you just heard me. Yeah, I don't remember. Well, the five is right. It's a fifth, not five percent. Oh, a fifth. A fifth. Right. He wouldn't. He wouldn't accept five percent. Right. Number four. What was the name of the ship Cabot Cabot sailed on on his final voyage? It was named after his wife, sort of. Her name was Margareta. No. 
But it was something stupid. It was like a boy's name instead of her name. It was M- Matthew? Yep. Matthew, yep. That's right. She was Matea. Matea. Mm. And number five, you're doing well so far. I'm doing the other bloke It's now. taking a lot of brain power for this one. <laughs> okay. What was Sebastian Cabot's advice to do if you want to know the secrets of the natives' hearts? <laughs> Get them drunk. <laughs> Get them drunk, yes. <laughs> yeah, you've got, hang on, what you got? One, I think, yeah, I think four. Four, yeah. Four, okay. yeah. Four out of five. Excellent. Well done. Not bad. Right. Interrogation over. Funniest part is what I really remember is the little blankets. <laughs> the little blankets. <laughs> Mother, father, and all the little blankets. <laughs> okay. Right. Enough quizzing already. Let's get on with it. On top of your apology. Oh, another one. We are about to do Sir Edward Poinings. And I'm, I would I might make a, a bet here. I don't think I'm going to like him very much. <laughs> I don't know much about him, but You've I've got a feeling I'm not going to like him. I won't <laughs> give it away. Doing the research on Edward Poinings was really, really cool. <laughs> Had to go back to university. Because <laughs> some things were only available in research journals. And it was amazing to go from what I had originally thought to what I ended up with. Oh. I know that this, when I say on top of your apology, I know this is going to be a highly divisive episode. If you're Irish, I am fairly certain you're going to hate him mm. because of the Poinings Law, which we will talk about. And I want to acknowledge that, yes, this ended up being absolutely horrific for Ireland for centuries, really. But for us in this podcast, We're going to attempt to look at the entirety of his life, not just that one tiny portion. It will include his time in Ireland, but also everywhere else. We're looking at this from the point of view of the English at the time of the Tudors. (laughs) So please, if you're from Ireland, I know this is probably going to upset you, but try to keep an open mind and realize that we're looking at it from a completely different point of view. And also, if he were to get Tudorlicious... The, the word Tudorlicious does sound sort of scrummy and sugary with a cherry on top. It doesn't mean that. <laughs> it means interesting. <laughs> yes, no, it doesn't. It means worth worth hearing about, which I'm sure he will be. <laughs> <laughs> now, on with the episode. Okay. Come with me, if you will. It is a bright, beautiful, warm, sunny day in Bellingham in France. But in actuality... You're on English land. Amazing buildings surround the crowds and there are fountains of wine that people are dipping their cups into freely. As you pass a building, you notice that the wall moves and you realize that it's a tent painted as a building. How extraordinary. You hear a great crash and crowds cheering and you run towards the noise just as the jousters take their positions for a second pass. The horses charge, their hooves thundering, and great gravel being thrown up behind them. The lances lower and strike. One rider is thrown from his horse with a resounding crash. Men rush out into the center of the tilt yard to see to the fallen rider. His armor is dented so badly that the men begin cutting the leather straps to release the rider from his armor as he struggles to breathe under the crushed-in chest piece. 
The armor is pulled away and the man can breathe. And he gives a signal that he's okay. The crowds are jubilant and cheer. The challenger is ecstatic. He won without inflicting a grave injury, for this was one of his friends. A man in the viewing stand next to the kings of England and France stands and gravely pronounces the challenger the winner. The crowds cheer. This is the perfect day. Nothing has gone awry, thanks to this man's careful planning. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Mm. Sir Edward Poynings. This is the first man we are discussing to have been considered one of Henry VIII, or Henry VII's. Sorry, I'm going to say that. Ooh, now you've done it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> to have been considered one of Henry VII's new men. Most of the men will have been lowborn or common, which is why they are called new men to the court. And many at the court looked down on them as they took positions that were originally dedicated to noblemen and peers. Henry could not trust his kingdom to many of the nobles as their loyalty was questionable. This is at the end of the War of the Roses. Mm, highly questionable, some of them. Very. <laughs> <laughs> Edward is slightly different than the majority of the new men in that he did come from noble stock, while not actually noble himself. He would hang on to that association with his noble relatives and his genealogy with both hands gripping for all they were worth for his entire life. Is that because he wasn't directly descended from the nobility? or He is, but he's the I younger s- son of a younger son. Uh, uh. He's born in 1459. We say this year, but really what we're having to do is look backwards through letters and court documents where it men- mentions his possible age to try to determine the year of his birth. It wasn't noted anywhere that it's been found. Something I'd like to reinforce is that on the opposite episode of John de la Pole, I was waxing eloquently about the Paston letters. In this episode, these letters became even more vital. Edward's mother is Elizabeth Paston. All right. We have letters in her handwriting mentioning him, which I thought was just the coolest thing ever. <laughs> I also got to brush up on reading French for this episode <laughs> and then struggled even more as I found out that French, like English, has um, changed quite a bit since the 1500s. But it would. It would. Oh, between myself and every so often going to my husband who is French fluent. Um, what does this say? And him reading and going, uh, I have no idea. <laughs> Puzzled- so is it, is it as far far away as Chaucer, Chaucerian? Well, not Chaucerian. Well, I don't know if Shakespearean we are, aren't we? Yeah. Somewhere between the two. Yeah. Somewhere be- yeah, I'd have it, thought somewhere between the two. It's a bit more familiar. French hasn't seemed to have changed as much as English, but it did. Because some of the words, I was like, I know what that means. And that makes no sense in this sentence whatsoever. Mm. So we puzzled out old French spelling and usages. But that means I may have gotten a few things wrong. And I'm totally going to own that. I think I did pretty well to get the gist, but... Maybe not always the specifics correct, but there were no English translations of these articles. (laughs) Edward's father was Robert Poynings, a younger son of the sixth Baron Poynings, also named Robert. As a younger son, Edward had absolutely no inheritance, no income, and nothing that he could rely on. He had to make his own way. His father was killed. It is hard for them, isn't it? I mean, the, the, the eldest son gets everything, yep. isn't it? I mean, for primogeniture. It's not surprising that there was um, often a certain amount of... Uh, I'm quite tired. <laughs> I can't think what the word is. <laughs> um, 
Envy. Envy between them, yeah. Some fathers would settle an annuity or something, but he ended up with absolutely nothing. His father was killed at the Second Battle of St. Albans in 1461. Edward was maybe two years old at this time, possibly younger. In 1466, so five years later, his mother married a second husband, George Brown, who by reports was very close to Edward IV and was one of his courtiers. George would then arrange Edward's marriage to Isabel. In some sources, she's called Elizabeth. I don't know if she had a nickname, but some of the letters call her Isabel. Some of them call her Elizabeth. We do know that this is a single person, and she was the daughter of Sir John Scott of Smeath, who was also another Yorkist courtier. We know by this that there was absolutely no wardship for Edward, which indicates that he was not worth any money whatsoever. This further confirms that he was a younger son. Mm. A younger son was expected to make his way in the world, and the best way to do that for the gentry of any rank was in the tournament circuit and war. And when I say tournament, I mean jousts, man-at-arm battles. Could you make money from the tournaments then? A lot of money. All right. So how would you you get paid for doing it, or you get paid for winning, or how does it work? You get paid for winning, and then I found that many noblemen would give gifts of money to people that they thought fought well in the hopes that they would, in the future, come fight for them. And then they were paid Mm. if they were brought in to fight battles for these noblemen. So you're sort of a mercenary. But at the same time, you were given quite good amounts of money. In some cases, you'd be given the winner of the absolute tournament, which we found Edwards did quite a lot, or Edward did quite a lot. You would be given a war horse, which was a fortune. You would be given Mm. gold and jewels and positions in people's courts. If the man did well, he would be rewarded sometimes with land as well, which would give you a full income, or not a full income, but a continual income. Do you think this was partly to stop younger sons from just generally marauding around the country, causing trouble? (laughs) Because there would have been a lot of younger sons, weren't there, that, that if they hadn't got this outlet, both physical and financial, it would be terrorizing the place, isn't it? Yes, when... Oh, gosh, now I'm trying to remember something else that I've read. When the tournament circuit was abolished, those younger sons quite often turned into highwaymen and gangs. Well, there we go then. (laughs) It was was a public service. Anyway, if they were rewarded with a position at the court of that ruler, they'd be basically a man-at-arms, not quite a knight. To become a knight, you'd have to prove your loyalty and ability for a certain amount of time before you'd be knighted. While we don't know if this is the route that Edward took entirely, we do know that he did do the tournament circuit, that he was very successful. We don't know which ones he attended, but he became extremely proficient as both a fighter and a captain or a general. We don't have any accounts of these tournaments. We just know that he got rewards. And while completing this requirement of a younger son, we do know that he also was fantastic at networking. He uses his contacts from the tournaments and from being a mercenary later in his life. And it's mentioned time and again that these favorable contacts 
and his charismatic ability to make firm friendships last through the years is why he was selected over and over and over again as a military campaign leader and as a diplomat. Yeah, because quite often the two don't necessarily go together, do they? No, they're usually (laughs) quite separate, but he ends up doing both. His obvious military prowess, and I say obvious because it was mentioned so often, was recognized by Edward IV. In 1475, Poynings was appointed the Marshal of Calais. So he was in charge of the garrison there and took command there during his Edward's campaign in France. Also during Edward's reign, he was the ambassador to the court of Burgundy four times. So here we see right off the get-go, he was off doing military work and being a diplomat. Yeah, I know the, I know being the Marshal of Calais was quite a, a sought-after post, wasn't it? It was. It was quite lucrative. It was also noted that he had special relationships with the Burgundians. He was active continually during this time that he was Marshal of Calais in their tournaments. Ah. So we know that he didn't stop. If we go back to when you pulled... Edward Poynings for me. You mentioned that Poynings had popped up everywhere in your research. Oh my gosh, were you not kidding? Yeah, it was. I was looking at uh, Henry VII's march up through Wales, and I was looking at the people mm-hmm. he picked up along the way or brought with him, and writing little biographies about each of them. And most of them had a little biography. Poynings, I gave up in the end. It just it was page <laughs> after page after page. Because <laughs> I was going to make an interactive map, and all these little things would pop up. But I thought, when it gets to Poynings, it's going to take over the whole map. So I gave up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because of how active he was, I decided to only mention some of the major things that he did. Or we will be here forever. Okay. I also wrote this one a little differently. I specifically went for in this year, in this year, in this year, in this year. Instead of doing it more of a story fashion, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to see if I can find a ping pong ball sound effect (laughs) for how often this man was everywhere, absolutely everywhere. He constantly was going across the channel from one country to another country all over the map throughout his entire life. And again, we need to keep in mind that Travel at this time was long and slow. Especially crossing the Channel. It seemed much harder to cross the Channel in those days than it seems to be now. Yeah. Oh, it felt chaotic to me just reading about it. Mm. <laughs> I can't imagine actually living the way he did. It is extraordinary how much how much people did move about. Because you think of Jas- Jasper Tudor, mm-hmm. constantly on the move. I mean, it puts us to shame, really. <laughs> yeah, we seem lazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We begin in 1483, so this is two years before the Battle of Bosworth. Mm-hmm. Poynings is in rebellion against Richard III, possibly due to his relationship with stepfather and father-in-law, who both opposed Richard III. He was the leader in the Risings, along with the Duke of Buckingham, due to his ability to muster troops from his tournament days. So where was he leading from? Because Buckingham was over in the west, wasn't he? Uh which is why he got why he got stuck the wrong side of the River Severn. Yes, I, I'm not sure. And there wasn't okay. a lot of detail here, just the fact that he was one of the leaders for mustering troops. I know a lot of them were from Kent, weren't they, in the southern mm-hmm. counties. The failure of this uprising resulted in him fleeing to Brittany and immediately joining Henry VII there. Mm-hmm. Henry was not yet the historically obvious next king of England. 
though this was a risk. Poyning's choice may be because Henry was the next Beaufort in the Lancastrian line from the now deceased Duke of Buckingham. He could have been encouraged to join Henry by Margaret Beaufort, who was a friend of Elizabeth Paston, his mother. Yeah. And she was also another leader in that rebellion. Sorry? So that sounds quite likely. Mm -hmm. Margaret telling him telling him where to go. (laughs) (laughs) Right, you go over there and shoe sort this. Yes, yes. And I got to shoehorn her into another episode. (laughs) Yeah, don't worry, I noticed that. (laughs) But no, seriously, there was there is mention that Margaret and Edward were in contact. In the next two years, so from 1483, Poynings was recognized as a military leader amongst Henry VII's followers. Polydor Virgil called him the chief captain of the army. And keep in mind, he's only around 23, 24. Right, I suppose you've got to cram it in early, haven't you? You're not going to last long, especially not if you're doing the tournament circuit. And Yeah, it was amazing how many people died during the tournament circuits. Really? It was not a safe thing to do. No, when you finally find some of the records during this, because um, a lot of the monarchs, if they were hosting it or whoever was hosting it, would pay sort of a, a, I don't know how to put it, like, I am sorry for your loss payment to the wives (laughs) or mothers. (laughs) So you have this record of everybody who died. It was horrific. That was not a safe thing to do. Well, I suppose that's why the monarchs were discouraged from joining in, weren't they? Oh, um... It didn't stop them, necessarily. Mary, Queen of Scots, her stepfather died in a tournament. Oh, did you? Yeah. The French king, he got a lance in the eye. Oh, yeah. That rings a bell. So, yeah. Hmm. There's a very prominent death right there. <laughs> hmm. I mean, you, it's... You're on two massive horses, thundering towards each other, pointing sharp yeah. things at each other. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not going to be safe, is it? <laughs> no. No. And when we think of like, football right now and how easy it is to get a concussion and the after effects of that, mm. and they were often doing it several times in one day. Mm. And I don't suppose there was much cushioning inside those helmets, was there? It's not like a cycle helmet where you get... No. They weren't supposed to hit the helmets. Yeah, but if you fell off the horse and you bashed, you crashed yeah. down onto the ground, your head is going to wobble about in that helmet. Yeah. And the goal was to get you off the horse. Although you could score points by where you hit the shield that mm. was attached to the armor. There is um, a documentary that I just watched to try to figure out what it was like to be in a tournament and even seeing some of the crashes. It was like... Oh my God, like, can you move tomorrow? Mm. The amount of bruises. And when I got into that cutting them out of the armor, because the chest piece was caved in, that was actually out of one of those records of the damage. The person had ended up breaking several things in his chest. Yes. (laughs) And he was suffocating to death. Yeah, I should imagine at a certain point, the armor becomes a liability rather than a protection, doesn't it? I mean, it's it's the thing that's that's causing, causing the injuries. Yeah. Yeah. The remark was when he was suffocating, he asked them not to cut the leather straps because apparently getting that perfect fit was so difficult. So you weren't chafed anywhere while you were fighting. And in the end, they did cut his leather straps to get him out of That's it. That's like when you go to hospital and they cut you out of your clothes and lots of people try and fight them off and say, no, no, this is my favorite yeah. jacket. <laughs> yeah. no, you're dying. <laughs> you won't be wearing it if you don't get it off. <laughs> It's fascinating some of the rabbit holes you can go down and then every so often you get a tap on your shoulder from your husband saying, is that really what you're supposed to be studying right now? 
<laughs> no. Well, I mean, we've already talked about 15 minutes about jousting rather than about Edward Poynings. <laughs> <Yep. laughs> Which was another reason why I tried to keep it as narrow as possible for him. There's a lot of stuff that we're going to go over. Okay, so back to Edward. The leadership yep. and loyalty that he showed to Henry at this battle and before and during this time in Henry's life where he was so possibly going to die made him a trusted ally for the entirety of Henry's reign. He keeps that trust, unlike several others. Not once does Edward appear to be in disrepute. There is one person who maliciously tried to get Henry to start being suspicious of Edward, and it was thrown out. Henry didn't even consider it. It was really surprising to see that. His level of involvement in government only increases during his lifetime. I should note here that part of his success militarily is his ability to muster troops from the tournament circuit. He was also mm -hmm. able to persuade men to join him in his fights with money and particularly his success record. A man-at-arms had a choice of whether or not they'd join you, and that choice was often based on the survival of your troops from your previous battles. Edward Poynings has almost the best. Well, it would be consideration, wouldn't it? I mean, you'd, you'd want to look at the stats if you, before you went into these things. Yeah, but I never really thought about it. I mean, if, if somebody lost all their troops constantly, you're not going to want to be in his army. No, but people would line up to join him. In one case, for mm. a battle, he only had enough money for a certain number of men, so he got to pick and choose who he was coming with him, which is not something I found elsewhere. Mm. When Henry landed in England, he immediately swore Poynings in as a knight baronet. And after the battle in the same year, Poynings was sworn into the Privy Council. He was one of the first. This is the highest area of influence in the country. He was active pretty much immediately with the council and courts, beginning with trying a rebel yeoman in Canterbury. We have records from, I believe that's the fourth month into the reign of him being part of the courts. This is not a position that he would take lightly or allow others to do his work, which is one of the reasons why we're going to talk about that ping pong ball. Right. <laughs> was that quite common then to pass off your job to underlings? Yes. Yeah, so you'd get paid a certain amount to be, say, the court judge, or there's mm. usually multiple judges at this time on these commissions, but you couldn't always be there or you didn't want to be. So you would pay a designate a smaller amount of money <laughs> to take yeah. your position and then you didn't have to travel. After three years of working with the Privy Council and establishing himself amongst the law courts as both a judge and as a source for appeals to the king, he was appointed head commission to review the defenses of Calais in anticipation of French aggression. So, 1489, off he heads to France, across the channel. By all accounts, he not only bolstered the defenses there, but also managed to reduce tensions between the English and the French in Calais. Apparently, there was almost going to be rioting in the city itself. We tend to think of Calais as either all French or all English, but it wasn't. It was a mixture of both. So he had to walk those waters and calm things down, and he was successful. He also had diplomatic duties with the French, successfully protecting Calais from being a target. So, off to the French court. <laughs> 1491, less than two years later, Poynings is back in England to be made a Knight of the Garter for his obvious abilities and successes in the battlefield and in diplomacy for the king. It seems he was specifically recalled for this honor. 
Remember, there can only be 12 Knights of the Garter at one time. To be chosen to be inducted to this order was one of the highest acclamations you could get, and somebody had to die for you to get it. That's right, yeah. Poining's chosen motto was, and I apologize, this is not current French, so I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce it. Loyalté n'a peur. Which roughly translates to either loyalty does not fear or loyalty is not afraid. Hmm. We know that Poining spoke fluent French and didn't just adopt a French motto because he was required to interpret for French noblemen during the French-English peace negotiations of 1492. Back to France. (laughs) Poining showed his loyalty openly without reservation. And this started right away. That that would mean a lot to Henry because he's... He can't trust the people around him entirely, can he? No. Very few of them. Uncle Jasper. No. Not many others. And this is right away. Mm. Even though Henry VII was not secure on the throne in any way, shape or form. Was um, Poynings, was he Lancastrian or Yorkist? Uh, It depends on where you think about it. His father would have been Lancastrian, Mm. but his stepfather was Yorkist. And since he was so young, when he was adopted by his stepfather and started his training, I would think he would have been leaning towards the Orcists. Mm. He only rebelled when the entire family rebelled against Richard III after the supposed death of the princes. Yes, then then it didn't matter whether you were Lancastrian or Yorkist. It was the rumour of the princes that was the, uh, yeah. the clincher, wasn't it? Yeah. Now... He was really going for Henry VII. There was no turning back for him. He had Tudor roses and crowned royal arms included in the plaster in the ceilings of his house at Weston Hanger. And there are tantalizing little comments found elsewhere that he incorporated those same heraldic icons in his other homes and on his horses. Horses didn't just have a saddle. They'd have this beautiful blanket of your royal house or your livery. And he, instead of putting his mostly on it, it was most often the Tudor royal arms to show his loyalty. And sometimes these things would be immensely expensive fabric, even cloth of gold. Very much. And embroidered in gold. He had his embroidered in gold. I've actually attempted to embroider in gold. You can still buy gold thread. It breaks. <laughs> it breaks really <laughs> easily. <laughs> I have never done it again. I go with faux gold anytime <laughs> I try to use it. It's awful. Uh, it's not just expensive to have on. It's expensive to have somebody do it properly. Did you know cloth of gold? You couldn't really sit down. Otherwise, you would put a permanent fold in your dress. Right. So you've got to waft about instead. Yep. You have to stay standing. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, life is so much easier now, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. Fairly early in the reign, Poinings acted as a fafi. I found out how to pronounce that. I said it before as a fiofi, but it's actually a fafi. Oh, right. I was thinking fiofi. Yeah. When I've read fa-fi. it. So, this is a person that holds lands. So, he was holding lands that Henry had either bought or confiscated for the crown. He would manage it and pay the crown sort of a lease. So he would get a profit, but most of it would go to the crown. He was also involved in assessing subjects and towns for taxation in areas around London and his own land holdings. His signature can be found on various treaties and other court documents attesting to both his act of participation and the trust of the king. He seems to have been called on any time it was a diplomatically sensitive matter. 
which says mm. something to his ability to unruffle feathers. Mm. Okay, this still in 1492. Quite, not quite the uh, Edward Poynings I was expecting, I must admit. No, <laughs> I was expecting this horrific monster that nobody could trust and everybody hated and very quickly was told I was very wrong. <laughs> mm. Okay. So back to 1492, Poynings is sent back across the channel again. In command of 1,500 men that he had mustered to aid the Habsburgs, specifically Maximilian I, the Holy Roman Emperor, at Sluy in the Netherlands against the rebels. This may have been part of a diplomatic deal for the return of Edmund de la Pole. We will be discussing okay. him in a future episode, but Henry very much wanted to get his hands on him. Certainly did, yes. Yes. He was quite obsessed with it, wasn't he? Yeah, this is the younger brother of the rebel Earl of Lincoln. And Maximilian didn't want to give him up, and Henry really wanted him. So this may have been part of that deal, which never actually occurred. 1493, pop him back over to France. He is deputized for Giles Lord Daubney to retain command of Calais. This means that he became the governor of Calais. He's not just looking after the garrison anymore. He's looking after the entirety of the settlement. While he's there, he gets thrown off to Burgundy to do diplomatic missions to the court of Philip the Fair to cash in on his relationships he had with the Burgundians with the aim to get Perkin Warbeck expelled from Burgundy. Henry had sent him with loads of money to be able to, as author Stephen Gunn puts it, make a splash amongst his noble friends. Is Margaret in the court at the time? Uh Yes. Right, okay. Okay. <laughs> this turned out not to be successful, but it was not his but his companion's undiplomatic denunciation of Margaret of Burgundy that made this a f failed mission. Uh, no, we don't no, we don't do that. No. <laughs> Poynings then met with the dowager duchess Margaret of Burgundy to unruffle her feathers. He managed to obtain a promise from Philip that he would not aid Warbeck. But Philip also said that he couldn't control his stepmother, Margaret, who at this time was regent. <laughs> so do you think Philip was using that as an excuse or do you think he really was frightened of Margaret? I think he really was frightened of Margaret. Yeah. I can't wait till we get to hers or his episodes just to see the power play. She was very much in charge at this time. Mm. Through all of Edward's successes, I found it really impressive that he was not so mired in his own ego that he couldn't recognize that others were better at certain things than himself. There was a military man, I'm going to apologize every time I have to pronounce something because I have no idea how this goes, but I believe it's Wilvot von Schomburg. Sounds impressive, yep. He wrote to many others after fighting alongside Edward that no one in the English forces knew how to use gabions. Don't worry, I looked this up. Gabions mm -hmm. were new. They were earth, sand, or rock-filled walls that were set up in front of the cannons or other siege weapons like trebuchets. The siege weapons could fire over the gabions, but it was harder for the opposing force to take out the siege weapons without just hitting this barrier in front of them. Mm -hmm. When the suggestion was brought up to Poynings, instead of pushing it off or saying, yes, I will go get them to do them, he actually asked Vilvot to direct the English troops in how to do this. He handed over control of his own troops to somebody else. 
Vilvat's writings appear to show that he was both surprised by the lack of knowledge and astounded, as he puts it, that Poynings was so gracious in handing his troops to him for instruction. It's like when you hear of somebody famous being such a sweetheart. <laughs> it does make a lot of sense. I mean, if you want, if you want something done, get an expert. But yes, it, just because something makes sense, it doesn't mean people will do it, does it? No. And people will hang on to their troops, you know, come what may. Yeah. And the other thing that I, the way it read is that Poynings didn't just ask him to instruct him. He handed the troops over. He handed over command of those troops to mm. him. I don't know very many. I'm not sure I'd be willing to do that to somebody that I barely knew. <laughs> yes, because you don't I'm know whether they, they're a plant and they'll just say, right, I've got your troops. Boys, get in. Yeah. So I'm guessing he was also a very good judge of character. Yes, he must have, must have had a sense that it was going to be all right. Mm-hmm. Okay, 1493, popping back over to England. <laughs> that year, Prince Henry was made warden of the Sank ports of Kent and Sussex. Mm -hmm. These ports were crucial for both imports and for defense against invasion from the Channel. The prince was obviously too young to be the warden, and Poynings was made his lieutenant. When I re read this and what happened a few years later, I think that Henry VII set this up deliberately as an interim measure, not for Prince Henry, but for Poynings himself. Prior to 1493, wardens of the St. Ports were all prominent noblemen. And I don't mean prominent as in, hey, we look good. I mean, they were all earls and dukes. The Earl of Warwick, for example, was a warden of the St. Ports. The warden filled a great deal of roles. He was the sheriff, Lord Admiral, and quite literally a warden, he'd imprison criminals and troublemakers. This was an incredible source of power. And for somebody as suspicious as Henry VII to give this to Poynings is just massive. Did that cause resentment amongst the nobility? I should imagine it probably did. I didn't find anywhere where anybody else in Henry's court was dissatisfied or conspired against Edward's anywhere. I'm guessing that's his diplomatic ability again. He didn't ruffle feathers by anybody. That's quite a, quite an achievement at that time. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, especially when you find out that because of this role, he developed a personal court at Dover that would hear appeals. Yeah. So he had a subject court below the king's court, and he still managed to not tick people off. He would also have to muster naval troops to deal with piracy and secure the channel. No, I was just going to say that piracy was a huge problem at this time, wasn't it? Very much so. In fact, it's amazing that he can he can bob backwards and forwards across the channel and not be attacked by pirates each time. It was a gamble. It mm. was ultimately a gamble. Diplomatically, Henry could not give this position to someone who had no rank. People would have been offended. Poynings, however, was able to manage the port so well and develop such a good reputation that he was made warden in his own right in 1509. He was not an earl, not even a nobleman, and at this point he was still just a knight. This position was critical at times. When they expected invasion from Perk and Warbeck, Edward prepared the navy and forwarded intelligence to the court. He also managed to avert a diplomatic disaster with France. A friendship was held by the St. Ports while a dispute was resolved. Basically, it was smuggling. When another ship from France arrived to bring goods to the town, the town decided to hold them as well, just because they were French. 
even though the two ships were completely unrelated, not the same captain, not even from the same location. Poynings quickly managed the release of the ship and the diplomatic apology to France to prevent rising tensions, all before even Henry found out about what was going on. I bet there was some panic there as well. Yeah, just smooth it all over. (laughs) Got to get this sorted before he finds out. Yes, and as we're talking about that, worrying about the king, Poynings' job here wasn't all for the king either. He was also required to perform well in representing the port's rights and concerns to the king. In seizures of goods, maintaining their historical rights, taxation, and Poynings was very well thought of by both sides. He even went against another of the king's new men, Richard Empson, who we will be talking about in the future, I'm sure. Empson was attempting to give the Duchy of Lancaster authority over Pevensey. If successful, taxes would no longer be held by Pevensey, but would be then passed on to Lancaster, and Lancaster could demand men from Pevensey in times of war. Poynings quashed this. He managed to maintain Pevensey's independence against another highly positioned new men. Mm. He was so well thought of by the ports that we have evidence of other ports in the country seeking his advice, and people of the Sank ports sought his advice on matters that he had no authority over and technically no expertise. People were coming to him from everywhere. Well, some people just exude not knowledge about things, don't they? And that you think, oh yes, I'm sure they, I'm sure they know what they're talking about. Yeah, like us on this podcast. Indeed, <laughs> indeed, yes, yes. I'm sure. What they I, don't I, know is we walk into walls. <laughs> I, I think I think we've got away with it. <laughs> so now we come to this controversial topic. Right, Prince Henry was made Viceroy of Ireland, yep. and Poynings becomes his deputy. Oddly, the reason we have so much detail about this time in Ireland is because the anger the Irish felt towards his actions and possibly still resent him for them. The third time this year, 1493, Poynings is off yet again, this time to Ireland to command troops. Poynings' first item on the agenda, quite bluntly, was punishment and vengeance. He wanted to reap vengeance through military campaigns on the Irish chieftains that helped Warbeck, and he was brutal to those he felt were a danger to Harry. This is not unusual for any military campaign in any way, shape, or form. You find out that pretty much every royal who had rebellions was brutal to the rebels to prevent it from happening again. So while it was horrific, it wasn't unusual. And it does seem that people seem to think that Ireland was fair game for this sort of thing as well, didn't they? Yeah, Spain tried to take part England's trying to take them over. At one point, you see that the Scots have come into the north and started pushing their way down. Everybody was free for all. Oh, that's right. Robert the Bruce's brother or something, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah thank you, Rex Factor. <laughs> <laughs> Poynings put those gabions we talked about earlier to good effect. So he now learned his lesson. He positioned them and managed to use them to break Perkin Warbeck's siege of Waterford. Of his actions in Ireland... Poynings Law is what he's most famous for. This is properly known as the Statute Drogheda. Yeah. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Drogheda? Something like that. Yeah, I'm not sure. England had steadily been losing control of even the small pale they had in Ireland. If our listeners go back to the website for the background episode, you can see the area of control is actually very, very, very tiny. Mm. 
This statute required that all Irish parliamentary bills created and voted on by Ireland's parliament had to be submitted to the English king for approval through the English parliament. The Irish parliament didn't even have direct communication with the king. The bills had to be passed by the English parliament first and then presented to the king and privy council. At both these checkpoints, shall we call them? the bills could be changed or entirely rejected. So before that, did they have the right to make their own laws? Yes. And, uh, yeah, well, you can see why they're miffed then, can't you? Mm, A little bit. (laughs) Just wait. So only once they were approved by the English were they then returned to be presented again to the Irish Parliament for them to vote on. But at this point, they were now obligated to accept them. The only bone thrown to the Irish Parliament was that they could send delegates to attempt to influence the English Parliament. This statute remained in effect until repealed. And this confused me a bit. Most sources put the repeal in 1782, so 200 years later. Others put the final repeal as 1878, so it remained on the books but wasn't really enforced until... 1878. Hmm. Two things to note. It's it's not surprising then that the Irish have heard of Poynings, because I don't think many English people have. I certainly haven't no. before this. But but if it's if that law had been on the statute for so long, then um, yes, yeah, it would be something that you'd you'd mention quite often. I'd have thought. But two things to note. One, we have no idea who actually wrote the law. It's attributed to Poynings because he convened the parliament in Drogheda, and it can be assumed he did so with the military might he had with him in attendance. But we don't have any record of military force being used. I'm not doing a revisionist revisionist history here, but it would have been nice to know if he had written it or if Henry and the council had and Poynings just had to present it. So he might might be set up, he's been set up as the... Fall guy. The, the, yeah, the bad guy in all this. and oh, yeah. That's interesting. Number two, which is also probably more important, this law only, only applied to that tiny pale. It had its own Irish parliament for the English subjects in Ireland. It didn't even apply to the Irish. So this law that they thought was so horrific at that time had absolutely nothing to do with the rest of Ireland. But but, but how were laws uh, made in the rest of Ireland then? They had their own government. They did? They did. Ah. And that wasn't covered by this at all? No. Nope. Only that tiny little pale, which is maybe 15% of the entirety of Ireland. It wasn't until, again, sources conflict... 1606 or 1608 that this law applied to the rest of Ireland. So that at that point, that's when the, the real problem started, presumably. Yes, mm. when England managed to take over the rest of it, and this was when the Stuarts were in power. Mm. Poynings had been dead for more than a century. This is when the Irish really saw this law as evil. When it was written... It wasn't written to be in law over the Irish. It was written as a law to be over the English that were in Ireland. So he might he might not have written it. It wasn't meant for the Irish. Yeah. It was only for a tiny part. So yes. he might yeah, he might be being maligned, I suppose, mightn't he then? 
it felt a little like it. So the law and the fact that they call it the Poynings Law instead of the actual statute name really says that this person is at fault, but I couldn't yeah. find it as his fault. Especially since at any time they could have removed that law when they took over the rest of Ireland, but they didn't. The Stuarts decided to retain that law so they had more power. Yeah, so you can see it from their point of view that they um that it'd be more useful to have it for them than not to have it, wouldn't it? Yes. But we can't I just couldn't attribute that kind of nastiness to him because that wasn't the original intent of the law. Hmm. Mm, that's quite quite a turnaround. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, did they really have to pass that statute? And the reason I asked that is because Poynings Law was not the only item that he was required to present when calling that parliament. He was also attempting to have the parliament levy heavy taxation on clerics in Ireland. And that means the religious houses. Mm. And they absolutely would not. It was completely unsuccessful. It was unsuccessful passing the law or getting the money out of the clerics. Getting the money out of the clerics and passing the law. They refused to levy that tax. They refused to pass that law. So they were okay with one, but not okay with the other, which says they found that original law okay. Mm, Yeah. So they had a choice. They had a choice and they went, ah. Yes. Which calls into question the military might theory that the reason they passed it was because he had the army behind him. Well, then he would have gotten everything you would think. Especially Mm. since this would have absolutely no effect on the peerage in Ireland. This law was entirely on the religious houses. Mm. Yeah, it it made it very muddied waters for me. (laughs) (laughs) And that's all we're going to say about that law. That's all we got. No, that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting because that's not at all... Not at all what I was expecting. No, we have... I was expecting a story about a brutal thug who rushed into Ireland, all guns blazing. Yep. And uh, took over. Yes, it was a military campaign, and yes, he took over, but he took over the tiny little area that the English were living. Mm. Not the rest of it. We don't have the year that he returned from Ireland, but we see him extremely busy with all of his duties, so we know that he was back in England again. He was still a member of the Privy Council. He was still Lieutenant of the Sankports. He still sat in courts of law in various areas. How is he doing all this? How is he fitting it all in? I don't know. (laughs) Especially if he was doing it and not passing it on to minions. And he didn't. He didn't pass anything on to minions. Some men made comments in the letters wondering how he wasn't worn out. Hmm. It was considered exceptional at that time. Although, yeah, I mean, they, they did take on several officers, didn't they? He was in about Cromwell. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he, he was pretty worn out, wasn't he? But yes. By it all. But, uh, yeah, one job didn't seem to be enough. For, once you were given one, you were given a whole load of them. Yes. He also managed to continue as a diplomat through correspondence to various courts. He performed so well that in 1499, this is six years after beginning his campaign in Ireland, he was initiated into the Order of the Garter for both his military and diplomatic successes. And Poynings took his duties as a Knight of the Garter extremely seriously and only missed three of the annual chapter meetings during his 14 years as a knight 
And all three occasions, it was because he wasn't in England, but in other countries, either actively campaigning militarily or on diplomatic duties. I was going to say, I can't imagine he's just sunning himself on the beach. He's going to be out doing something (laughs) else, isn't he? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. In reference to his investiture in the order, Poynings had St. George, the garter and England's patron saint, carved over the entrance of his grand house in Westenhanger. He also had St. George incorporated into the stained glass of his chapel. You can see how he also managed to bring this investiture into his diplomacy as well, which I thought was a neat idea. Poynings and the King of Castile, later the King of Spain, Charles, who was also invested with the garter, dined together in Brussels in their garter regalia. (laughs) They had a meeting. Poynings was there to negotiate and get a treaty signed by Charles, and he was successful. Poynings had deliberately taken his robes with him when traveling quite often. Poynings was allowed to choose his badge at this time, and his badge that he chose was the crowned key. Keeping. Well, that's just it. The symbolism is quite good. The symbolism can be taken a few ways. It could mean that he had the key to the country or the key to the king. Mm -hmm. But what he was actually showing was that he was the key holder to the country, making sure that the country was safe. So it's funny how some people then took it as he wanted to be king and others took it as absolutely not. That was entirely a loyalty ploy. Hmm. Yeah, I should imagine also, going back to the idea of him taking his Knight of the Garter regalia about with him, he hasn't got anything impressive in his name. He's not the Earl of Warwick. He's not He's not the Earl of anything. So Correct. I suppose if he can get these, his togs on and his, his necklace, suddenly mm-hmm. he's somebody, isn't he? Somebody to be reckoned with, not just, yes. not just a, another sir. Yeah. Yeah, and he was at this point, he was still just another (laughs) sir, technically. Technically. The next year, Poynings is back in England. He was chosen to be one of the courtiers to greet Catherine and escort her to London. This is along with Poynings' wife. All right. We haven't haven't heard about her, have we? Nope. This is only one of two (laughs) mentions of her. That's it. Yeah, I was about to say, was she going backwards and forwards across the channel? But you wouldn't know if there's any two mentions of her. Yeah, we know she went once. Again, the next year, off he goes. Poynings was heavily involved in clearing the country of Warbeck sympathizers as well as Irish sympathizers. So back and forth across to Ireland. He, with other new men, hunted them down and tried them for their crimes. In a few situations, their crime could have only been remaining neutral in the situation. But... Poynings didn't try any of those. He only tried those that actively took up arms. I don't know if this shows that he has, shall we say, more scruples than the rest of the new men, but there is nothing showing that he tried anybody that did not actively do something. Yeah, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? Being told that if you're neutral, then you're you're against us. Yes. Because, yeah, we think loads of people will be neutral because you just don't know how it's going to pan out, do you? I mean, you don't want to find yourself on the wrong side. Or you just don't want to get involved. Sorry. Yeah, it's it's nothing to do with me. Yeah. (laughs) The penalties inflicted varied from fines to bonds of good behavior to imprisonment and, in some cases, execution. 
he and the commission traveled all over England ferreting out the offenders in the saddle all the time. This time was a very dark period for the kingdom. Prince Arthur died. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then the next year, within nine months, Queen Elizabeth died in childbirth. Yeah. Henry VII became the dark king that he's famous for. He withdrew from the court and really increased the monetary control over his subjects. Yeah, it was quite an abrupt change, wasn't it? It was a very abrupt change. Mm. We can't say that these gifts were to increase rewards or if it was a gift that would hopefully help the king out of his grief, but Poining sent him hawks. Hmm. Henry VII was extremely fond of hawking, which I didn't realize. We wouldn't think that hawks would be a royal gift, but there is quite a bit of evidence of hawks being worth as much as 3 to 25 pounds. And when you think about yeah. it, a laborer could make between 5 and 10 pounds a year if they were very good. So it's several years' worth for a hawk. Presumably it's a trained hawk. Are they already trained by the time they, they, are they trained. cost that much? Yeah. Yes. Each rank was allowed only a specific bird. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I should say here that the medieval period called all hawks and falcons hawks. So, who could have what? Quite often, it was the size of the bird that dictated who could have it, or, and, the rarity of being able to catch and train one of these Hmm. birds. At the bottom, children, servants, knaves could have a kestrel. Ah, a kestrel for for a knave. That's the the book, you know, the film Kez. Yes. Yeah, the book was called A Kestrel for a Knave. Oh. I don't know if that's any connection at all, but... uh, It seems like it. Yeah. A holy water clerk. Don't know what that is, but they could only have a male sparrowhawk. Yes, sparrowhawks are nice enough. (laughs) A priest could have a female sparrowhawk. Yeoman could have a goshawk or a hobby. Mm -hmm. A lady could have a female merlin. A squire could have a lanner. A knight could have a saker. A baron could have a bastard hawk. That's the name of it. Okay. <laughs> An earl could have a Tercel peregrine falcon, a male. Oh, I wonder if that's from um, Iceland. Oh, I don't know. Mm. A duke could have a rock falcon. A prince could have a peregrine falcon. And the king only could have a gear falcon, male or female. All right, we'll have to look all these up afterwards. It was really neat. It's a good little rabbit hole to go down. Yeah. This, this, they're obsessed with the hierarchies, aren't they? Everything was a hierarchy. You can wear that hat, but not that hat. (laughs) All the way down. Uh, Although he wasn't campaigning or on diplomatic assignments, in 1503 he was still very busy in Kent, where he was attending the law courts for a variety of issues. He was specifically hearing cases of riots. The Kent men did love a good riot, didn't they? (laughs) They really did. Do they still love a good riot? <laughs> I was just trying to think that. <laughs> um, I think they're probably parts of Kent, maybe, that would like, like a good riot. But then <laughs> <laughs> At least a good, a good knees up. He attended law courts again in 1507 regarding Lord Bergaveni, which we might want to discuss later, for retaining, which was referring to retaining liveried followers. Remember Henry VII had made that illegal? Yes. Mm, yes, you're not meant to do that. Mm-mm. Poinings was often appointed to smaller commissions in law to try prisoners in prisons in areas of his land holdings. 
He was also required by the king, along with other counselors, to arbitrate disputes that were outside of the courts. For example, there was a dispute regarding the appointment of the Dean of Windsor that he had to hear. Resolving these disputes also allowed new men to hold an obligation over the disputants, heads for future favors. It wasn't, I'm going to give you justice, it's, I'm going to give you justice in return, you will do this. Was that, uh, that's how it all worked at that at this time, wasn't it? The bonds yes. and recognizances and all sorts of, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm. 1504, the next year, he was appointed to a commission for the reformation of idle people and vagabonds not set upon occupation to the great decay and ruin of cities, towns, boroughs, and villages. The commission was supposed to figure out what to do with the homeless and the beggars mm. in the town. Unfortunately, we found no recommendations. Oh, right. <laughs> Just like now, nobody <laughs> knows what to do. I thought that was hilarious. I was like, okay, so they didn't know then, they don't know now. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine it. the idea is going to be, oh, we'll make hostels for them and make sure they're all comfortable no. and safe. And No. They were to be taken care of by the church. I thought, well... Why didn't they throw them in prisons? Because they liked to throw everybody in prisons. Except the prisoners had to pay for themselves. Yeah. How would a person without a job and no home pay for themselves so there was no point in putting them in a prison? No warden would take them. You don't want that sort in a prison, do you? You can't afford it. No. Can't make money off of them. What a bizarre, what a bizarre world. Yes. (laughs) On top of all this, he was still in charge of the Sank Ports, which was a seriously time-demanding role. I did not list out all the times he had to go back there, but it was incessant. It was like, okay, you're in London, back to the Sank Ports. Okay, you're here, back to the Sank Ports. Oh, you're here. Oh, this has happened. Well, presumably each port had its own situation, its own problems. And so you're dealing with five, yes. five different... Five of the most critical ones for the security of the country. Yeah. And he was constantly having to deal with them. Everywhere he went, when he went into Ireland, he was still getting dispatches and reports and having to give instructions while he was dealing with the Irish military campaign. Seems like an insane amount of work. 1509, he was made comptroller for Henry VII. This is the person in charge of all the money in the household and where it's going to go and controlling who has access. Hang on. So that is for the money for the king's household, is it? Yes, right. yes. So there's the comptroller and then there's the treasurer. Right. The treasurer is for the country, the comptroller is for the court. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. For Henry Seventh, those were the two highest positions you could yes. hold. <laughs> <laughs> but Henry Seventh then died soon after in 1509. Poynings, unlike many of the other counselors, continued as the comptroller for Henry's son, Henry VIII. Mm. So did Henry VIII get rid of quite a lot of the councillors, or did his... um... Yes. Ah. Yeah. His military and diplomatic ability and loyalty were so unquestioned that he remained a major player in the court of Henry VIII. He wasn't cast off. How old is he at this time? He's getting on, isn't he? Oh. 50. He's around his 50s. Not a bad age. Nope. But to be across the channel again and off to the Netherlands to lead troops? (laughs) I wouldn't want to do it. (laughs) This was again to assist the Habsburgs in the successful siege of Sluis again, an unfortunately unsuccessful siege of Venlo. Accounts of Venlo do not actually attribute the fail to Poynings, 
but do attribute the saving of many English troops in this failure to his skill. Apparently, there was no way that they could win. They just didn't have the number of troops for what had showed up on the opposite side. But he was applauded for how he managed to extricate his army with the least amount of loss. So, yeah, so he managed to, he, rec- he, could, he recognized the problem and got them out, presumably. Yes. Mm. Well, yeah. that's, I mean, that's a skill in itself, isn't it? It is. If you think mm. about turning and running with people with bows and arrows behind you shooting you, <laughs> I mean, it has yeah, to be. And, and recognize, recognizing when to go and not just thinking, oh, no, I'm, I'm just going to stay here and fight it out. Yeah. It was also said here that he managed to clear the sea of privateers and pirates that were preying on English commerce ships traveling to the Netherlands, implying he was a successful naval commander as well as a commander of land troops. He's beginning to sound a little bit too good to be true now, isn't he? It it really did. I kept trying to find the nastiness. We'll get there. Oh, okay. Sort of. It was pointings that the rebels negotiated with to return to loyalty in the Netherlands. Not a Habsburg and not a noble. He's still just a knight. Mm. And he did the diplomacy there to end the hostility. Do we know why he's still just a knight? I mean, presumably Henry VII had... Um, there were plans to make him a baron, and Henry the Seventh passed away before that happened. But we will get to that as well. Okay. He also fought in Gelders. That was all I could find for that battle. Just the fact that he fought mm. successfully in Gelders. He returned to England that same year, as he had a prominent role in the funeral of young Prince Henry, the first son of Catherine of Aragon and Henry the Eighth. Yeah. So back across the Channel. 1512, we're getting on. Poynings did not fight or command troops, but he continued to muster troops and ordered armaments, most likely in anticipation of Henry VIII's upcoming campaign in France. Oh, yes. So while he that wasn't one. fighting, he was... Pardon? That one. <laughs> yes. So while he wasn't actively fighting, he was basically the quartermaster for the entire army, making sure they had enough people and armaments while also leading the delegation to the Lords to announce whom the Commons had chosen as Speaker. Why a note wouldn't do for the Commons to announce to the Lords who the Speaker was, I don't know, but the Tudors love their ceremony. Well, it's still like that with the uh, with Parliament. Oh! Well, I don't know if they have to have someone come and tell them, but it's still very wrapped around with tradition. I mean, you get Black uh. Rod coming and banging on the door to let them <laughs> in. Let us in! <laughs> I wonder if somebody said, I lost the key. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a still a, quite an odd building that filled with odd people. <laughs> oh, I really want to go. Mm, one day. In 1513, Poynings was also an ambassador in Brussels and the Netherlands again, so back across the channel. Mm-hmm. And was able to negotiate for cavalry for Henry's campaign in France. So he went there to sign treaties, do diplomacy, and then also find more men. He then joined the military forces in Tournai. This seems to be the only other time we see his wife. Remember, we saw her when she greeted Catherine. Mm -hmm. What's she up to now? She was noted to have entered the city with him. Okay. That's it. That's all we've got. So I don't know if she did join him on all diplomatic trips or specifically this one because he was going to take up residence for a certain amount of time. I personally wouldn't think she wanted to join him on military campaigns. 
I wouldn't personally want to join on me. No, no, it's not something I not something I'd fancy. It is it is odd not to know a thing about her though, isn't it? No, and even mm. their children is a source of controversy. Most cases it is said that they had one son named John Poinings. If they did, he died in fifteen oh four. So they may have had one son, they may not have had one son, but we do know that... When on earth would he get time? (laughs) Well, he had time to have seven illegitimate children that he acknowledged. Oh, okay. Take that back then. (laughs) He obviously made made the time. (laughs) If you want something doing, you make the time. (laughs) Yes. In a genealogy search, we get the name Rose Wethill as the mother of Thomas Poinings his eldest son. But other sites have her also as the mother of more of these children. I couldn't find a historical source that confirms the other children as being hers. Rose, however, was a servant of his wife and was left a large annuity at his death that suggests some naughty business might have happened over and over and over again. I wonder what his wife thought when she saw the will. I found one site that claimed that she had married Edward Poinings after his wife had passed away, but I found no historical reference to that marriage. Nothing whatsoever. So I'm going to continue to believe that the rest of the children were illegitimate. He was not the typical father in respect to his illegitimate children, thankfully. Like we saw in the Jasper episode, illegitimate children seem to have been rarely provided for. Mm. Jasper completely ignored his daughters. He did. Poinings didn't follow this. He purchased a great deal of land to endow his children and the girls to provide them with dowries that were enticing enough to have them wed to peers and noblemen. Is this his way into the nobility then? Possibly. I found a quote and then I lost the quote where he, in a letter, said his children, his daughters were too well born to not be married to the peerage. Okay. One of his daughters fell in love, apparently, with somebody who was not a nobleman or in the peerage, and he refused to let her marry him because she was too well born for that. Despite the fact he's not in the peerage, I mean, he's just a. No, he's, just he's a not. Oh. There must have been some arguments about that with her saying, but you're not one. And him saying, yes, yeah, we're not. <laughs> I love him. But he did come from the Baron. Just the lower son of a baron, but he was not okay with them marrying beneath his perceived station in life. But he did endow every single one of his children. He didn't go for primogeniture. Each one of his illegitimate children was fully provided for at his death, which is unusual. It's very unusual. Maybe being a younger son, he knew what it was like to have to make your own way. Well, for me, it showed an affection for his children, that he was capable of that kind of affection. Otherwise, who cares? Mm. Especially since the rest of the society at that time would have completely ignored the illegitimate children. So he was going against the grain to do that. Yeah, he's, he's, he's turning into a right little teddy bear, isn't he, this man? I mean, yeah! <laughs> <I know. laughs> 1513 to 1516, he was again bouncing back and forth to the continent and back on several embassies to the court of Philip the Fair. Poinings was on the pension of various royalty throughout his career. You would think this would not be okay with Henry VII, 
But Henry VII was perfectly fine with it. This was apparently due to his embassy's military help. He drew a pension from the Habsburgs to ensure trade and treaties were supported with England. At first, I thought this was a bribe or that he was a spy. Yes, I mean, this sounds... it doesn't sound right, does it? No, but it was granted a year after the treaty was signed and was paid with the full knowledge of the English court and the king. Mm. The king signed off on it, saying this was okay. The French had been paying him since the French treaty was signed, but the payments were dropped when the English changed their allegiance over to Spain. Well, that's fair enough. You can't keep you can't expect them to keep paying, really, can you? On that, in those circumstances, no. <laughs> you you didn't hold up your end of the bargain, which was to keep the king sweet on us. So we're not going to do it anymore. I looked into this, and this was everywhere. Everyone was on the take with multiple monarchs. And it was entirely to do with treaties. If you had a signed treaty, somebody would pay you to ensure that treaty was upheld. It's mm, a nice little learner. But they didn't pay you to make the treaty. So it was almost like a reward for services rendered after it was done. It wasn't just him doing it. So we can't say that's towards his character since that mm. was the norm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. During this time, 1513 to 1515, he was also the governor of Tournai. So he was everywhere. <laughs> Three years, I'm going to go everywhere. He's not slowing down, is he? No. no. He was incredibly successful in holding Tornai against attacks, as well as ferreting out conspiracies within the town. Military service and governorship was paid, sometimes handsomely, but often years after the service was completed. We do not know if he was paid during or after his service, but we do know that he may have been making either questionable or unpopular decisions both in England and Tournai. Poynings managed to have Parliament, the English Parliament, pass an act to protect him against litigation while he was in Tournai, regardless of the source. <laughs> Why? Exactly. <laughs> Why? What? What is he expecting to to be brought up in court about? We don't know. You don't pass that sort of. You don't ask for them to pass that sort of law unless there's something. Yes, or you're about to be found out. Yeah. Yeah, but I didn't find anything. Oh. He wasn't in court or sued for anything prior or afterwards. Nothing. So why was he worried about litigation during this? Was it a particularly litigious time? I mean, Very. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe he was just thinking, if I'm dragged back to stand up in court, then I can't do this and I can't do that. So Yeah. But then, was that, did many people ask for this law? Or is that just him? Uh, he's the only one that I found, but I, I didn't mm. go in depth with a bunch of people because I started thinking, wait, we're going to be researching them in the future. Yeah. I decided to leave them alone. I want to, when we do get to other people that were governor or the garrison master, I want to see if they did the same thing. Hmm. But mm -hmm. this was quite a shock. I was like, you haven't been in court yet, except as a judge. Why do you need this passed? It's almost like taking out insurance against it, isn't it? What he's planning to do. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We finally see age catching up to him here. In 1515, he requested his recall due to his health. But before leaving to return to England, the new governor of Tournai announced a cut in expenditure, essentially firing a great deal of people. <laughs> Poynings had to and managed to prevent a mutiny by the garrison before he left. 
And from accounts, they were already sort of mutinying. So he got in there while the fight had already started? That's, yeah, that's, that's, he hasn't thought that through, has he? No, and this is the new governor. I so it probably worked out great on paper. Right, okay, we can save this, 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 and this. All we've got to do is get rid of these people. Yeah, but I'm not actually yeah. there, so I don't know how they're going to take it. Well, we can yeah. foresee how they were going to take it. <laughs> yeah. Poinings paid out of his own pocket to send the men who were dismissed home and made other promises to them. We don't know what those were. It was just mentioned that he made other promises. And whatever those promises were, they settled the situation. And since he wasn't taken to court after that, I'm assuming he upheld those promises. Mm. Otherwise, they would have said, you did this and you didn't. Mm. On top of being governor and ambassador to Philip, he was also the ambassador at the court of the Archduke Charles for about 13 months on and off. This is Philip's successor and soon to be Charles V of Spain. It was hoped that Poinings could gain support for Henry's campaigns in northern France, as well as a mutual defense pact with Charles. He was also expected to renegotiate favorable trade terms, since the terms negotiated with the marriage of Henry VIII's sister Mary in France did not develop. If you remember, he died quite quickly after the marriage, so those... It's about three months, three months, I think, wasn't it? Something like that. Mm. Yeah. So those trade negotiations fell through because there was no marriage. And he managed to bring back the trade, even without another wedding. So he was successful there. The sources all agreed on how, and this is quoting, his chivalric network helped him in his diplomacy, increasing his welcome beyond what greater men could have expected if they had arrived instead. So the chivalric network, you're still going back to the, to the tournaments. tournaments. Mm. Mm-hmm. And this is decades on. But he was still active in it the tournaments. It seems a bit like a sort of old boys network, really, yeah. doesn't it? That's, I mean, it's just like you know, who you went to university with yes. or Eton or whatever it is. But it's, yeah, okay, well, that's, nothing changes. And it's still carrying through decades later, which I thought yeah. was surprising. But then that's where that one person had said earlier how he was able to keep lasting friendships through the years. The dispatches and correspondence from other courts all seem to make note of his wisdom and diligence. Those are the two most common terms. And not a single dispatch was unfavorable from any other court or from Henry's court to other courts. Nothing. There was no mention of him being bad or disreputable or difficult or disagreeable. Nothing. Hmm. He was able to provide Henry VIII with information and advice on diplomacy, geography, which I thought was hilarious. He's been everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Military capabilities and personalities in all of the courts he was sent to. He was an extreme wealth of information for Henry VIII. Yeah, I can imagine. Yes. I mean, he's been in virtually all the courts, met virtually everybody, hasn't he, over over the years? (laughs) Yeah, very. Many of the courts included people he'd also fought alongside either in tournaments or in battles while he was attempting to maintain or make his fortune. In between this, while in England, he was appointed to yet another commission that was to survey the nation's military mustering abilities, men, skills, weapons, etc. So he was all over England traveling to do this. This poor old guy, (laughs) he's in his mid-50s, can you imagine being on a horse all day, every day? Do we know whether he still wanted to do it 
were they just not let him go, like Elizabeth and Cecil? It's... Other people at this period will see mentions that they had rescinded what they were doing, and he didn't turn nice. That I'm I'm getting too old. I need to be recalled. Mm. So he was willing at least. And I don't have anywhere that there's a note saying that he wanted to not do it or can you please ask somebody else. So I'm going to go with yes, he was willing. For how active he was, I'm starting to imagine him as the Energizer Bunny. Mm. <laughs> Just keep going and going and going. Now, we've spoken a great deal of his mastering of battle both offensive and defenses, but he also seems to be an expert at politics. And I don't just mean diplomacy. He was an active and trusted counselor, not just for Henry VII, but also for Henry VIII up until his death. He was so well favored by the court that he also served in the two most administrative positions that everyone wanted, the comptroller, and then later the treasurer. So he managed to navigate the waters within that cutthroat Tudor court that everybody else was getting beheaded at. Yeah. And he's yes. still going. Yeah, and obviously, obviously trusted. I mean, you have these two financial posts. Positions. You've got to be trusted, haven't you? Yes, and you'll find with a few of them, people, like if we remember a couple of the earlier ones, other courtiers were resenting them, and we could see that, or we found notes of that. I didn't find anything of that. If anything, I found notes of people asking if he could help them in something. Everybody seemed to be asking him for either advice or aid. Hmm. He is beginning to sound really... Is there is there a bad side? I haven't found one, to be honest. We're almost... We're getting pretty close to the end, and I never did hmm. find a bad side. Wow. When he was governor of Tournai, uh, dispatches from embassies say that Edward managed to convince the townspeople that he was one of them and worked towards their interests... And this was very successful for him. He didn't have a single time when he was in Tournai where he had anybody in the town attempt to riot. And when you look at later and prior, it was not a settled area. Mm. So he had that common touch, I think they call it. Because he could tell them, I'm not a nobleman, I guess. And yet he could presumably talk to noblemen on their level as because well. Because he was a nobleman. <laughs> mm-hmm. One of the actions he was noted for doing was to show a leading city councillor a letter from Henry VII claiming their disloyalty. So Henry thinks you're disloyal, which, of course, could lead to execution. Yeah. What a terrifying thing to find. <laughs> to be yes. presented with that, your, your stomach must go bloop. It's, yeah. yeah. He then got them to proclaim their obedience and loyalty to the king and to help for help in actively controlling Turnai in return for Poining's protection against the angry king. Had Henry written this or is it? Yes. He had. Henry had. Poining's was willing to not send this man back because this person was supposed to be taken back to answer to the king. Instead, Poining's defended him against the king, which you think would be horrifically risky. If that's what he's doing, I mean, maybe they both set it up together. So Henry says, right, show him this. And then... Oh, that's possible too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then, yes, get them to swear loyalty. And then we can use them as sort of stooges in the town. And, yep. Which is going to be a lot easier than lugging them back and um, punishing them. 
Even though he was asked to be recalled from service in 1515, he again traveled to Calais in 1517, two years later, to head another commission to review the defenses of Calais. Back across the channel he goes. <laughs> he obviously doesn't suffer from seasickness anyway. Well, let's hope he didn't. <laughs> Otherwise, he's had a few nightmares. No. <laughs> Back in England the next year, 1518. This gave me a glimpse of just how far Poynings was willing to push himself for his loyalty to the Tudors. That year, I don't know if you've come across it in your research yet, was the year of the plague, sweating sickness, and malaria. <laughs> Which year is this, sorry? Oh, 1518. All right. Okay. So Henry VIII, this was one of the years where Henry VIII kept getting up and just running mm. oh, yeah. to somewhere else to stay away. The court was bombarded with this. So many people were dying and coming down with it. And Poynings, with only a few others, remained in London, in plague-ridden London, at great risk to themselves to keep the country going. They kept the government going. Hmm. The man's a saint. <laughs> yes. It must have made him look amazing to those people, to everybody, because this is when he was then promoted to treasurer, right after the plague had subsided. Well, you'd want, you'd want some recognition of that. Yeah. You risked your life in that way. Yeah, I very much could have died. The person sitting next to me died. <laughs> 1520. This was yet another busy year. In May, Henry met Charles V at a site that Poynings had decided on and set up magnificently. This was his area of Dover Castle. Remember, he was still part of the Sank Ports and Dover Castle was the subject court below the King's Court. So he's still doing that? He's still doing that. Okay. He skillfully managed this meeting to be a private affair at Wolsey's request. This is, our, I think, our first mention of Cardinal Wolsey. Hmm. First of many. Yeah. So he managed to keep this quiet. Nobody knew this happened. And I don't know how Poynings managed to do that. And rumors, rumors were insane during the Tudor times. Everybody knew everything. But apparently he managed to keep it completely quiet because they were still going to do the field of cloth of gold with the French. Mm. They had done all this negotiation and diplomacy to create this great brotherhood with the French. And Henry had decided to change to Spain to swap allegiances. God, that's going to be an interesting bit to cover. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Poynings also had a leading role diploma diplomatically at the Field of Cloth of Gold. He determined the sites for all aspects of the grand event. He basically had to decide where is it going to be? Where is the tournament going to be? Where are they going to hold the infamous wrestling match that he hadn't known was going to happen? He created... <laughs> The, basically the backdrop. He was also the one judging the jousters. And we're back to that come with me at the beginning. Mm. So he had set up everything, including these tournaments, and he was required to judge the jousters. So he judged for the challenger. Yeah. This really was diplomatic theater at its best. It's been suggested by some that during the Cloth of Gold, he was given a slow poison by the French. Because next year, he dies. That's a very slow poison, isn't it? Yes. It's actually within a couple of months, but it's over the next year, like calendar year. People are always being, you know, as soon as you get ill, it's all, must be poison, must be poison. <gasps> poison. Or you've been hexed by a witch. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. 
Many believed that he was taken out by the French because he was so influential and such a danger to a foe in any battle, and the French knew that military battle was coming up. Before the end of the Field of Cloth of Gold, they already knew that the treaty was not going to be upheld. But we don't have a cause of death, which may be why the rumors flew. He just became ill and died. I think it's probably old age, personally. <laughs> and well, yes, and we've just been saying a lot of people died. It could have been any of those things that people were dying of, plus many, many more. I just keep thinking he had to have been worn out. Yeah, exhaustion. Yeah, exhaustion. <laughs> Or seasickness. People died of seasickness. All the time. <laughs> Unfortunately for him, he died the year before, well, during the year that Henry VIII was going to be making him a baron. No. But Poynings was held in such a high regard by Henry VIII that he held his promise. He made Poynings' eldest illegitimate son a baron in his stead. Hmm. Like, that's big. I wonder if he'd done that if Poynings hadn't recognised his, his illegitimate children to such an extent. I mean, if he hadn't recognised them, many people might not even have known they existed, wouldn't they? Right. You'd have no clue if they didn't mm. be acknowledged. Mm. But yeah, so Henry made his illegitimate son a baron because Poynings mm. had passed away. And that is the end of Poynings. Shall we rate him? Well, I tell you, I am absolutely dreading the quiz <laughs> because there's so much. <laughs> oh so many dates, so many things, so many jobs. I, I tell you what, I won't include a single date in there. <laughs> but holy cow, I, I couldn't believe it. And that's just a snapshot. I left out so much more movement, so many more positions, mm. so much more, and not a single bit of it. From the Tudor point of view, or the French sources, or the Burgundian sources that I had to read, all of them counted them him as a hero and a wise person. Like, they just, they idolized this man. It doesn't seem fair. I mean, if, if you, what you say is right about Ireland, the only thing anybody would remember him about is Poynings Law. Yes. And that wasn't him. Well, that wasn't his life. Yeah. That was such a tiny little blurb that happened over maybe a week of discussions, and then he moved on. Mm. Like, he was brutal during warfare in Ireland, be fair, but that is warfare. He was brutal in everywhere, if you are having a military campaign. You can't really do a military <laughs> campaign with, you know, roses and butterflies. <laughs> no, no. And, yeah, as we know, Tudor's brutal. Very. They were a brutal lot. Yeah. Everybody at that time was a brutal lot, not just the Tudors. Gosh, you start looking into some of the ways they executed people in other countries, and you're like, oh, my God. Very um, imaginative. Yes. I think, use your imagination for something else. Yes, anything else, please. <laughs> yep, okay. All right. Let's meet him. Amphiboly. Amphiboly. This is our entry ground. How devious were they? He intrigued. Boy, did he ever. Right from his first young age, when he had started the tournament circuits, he was involved in the Kentish Rebellion against Richard III that resulted in him going into exile. In some accounts, he was critical in mustering the men for the rebellion. 
He wasn't just fighting. He was helping to organize it against... Because we don't hear about that very much. Because I've read quite a lot about the um, Buckingham Rebellion. Yeah. And you hear it all from Buckingham's side. Yes. And there's some other rebellions going on which started up too early and then yeah. through the whole thing. He might but, have um, been one of the ones that he started was, up He was early. one of them, yeah. Yeah. He was one of these anonymous people that we... <laughs> yeah. Later, when visiting the French court, he commented in a letter to Henry... I love this. I think it expedient, both in war and in peace, that your grace have such a one, meaning a spy, in the French king's court. It shows that he didn't flinch in using spies for the king's good. When he was governor of Tournay, he kept a lot of spies on his payroll. And he shows that they were informers in his payroll. <laughs> there was quite a... I'm surprised they weren't, didn't have their own sort of tax bracket. I mean, there was a load of... <laughs> so many spies at this time. <laughs> what I did find interesting was these spies, quite a number of them, were in the various guilds within the city. The Guild of Spies, was this? No, like as in uh, the Guild of Stonemasons mm. and the Guild of Woodworkers. He had a spy in almost every single one of them to oh, keep right. an eye on how the city was operating. Mm. Probably when you think about it, since you're finding out that they were very keen to riot and go against the governor, mm -hmm. it worked for him because he didn't have a single problem while he was in Tournai. Mm -hmm. And even then, while he was there, he had personal spies on his own personal payroll in the French court to alert him of any plans of attack or moves against Tournai while he was governor. And he did the same when he was governor of Calais, which seems prudent rather mm. than intriguing. Yeah, yeah, a bit of foresight. That's all we've got is just the fact that he, he was willing to use spies and he rebelled against Richard III. So what do you think? Well, I'd say that was the intrigue, wasn't it? I mean, isn't that... I'm trying to think of anything else you could do. I don't know. Hmm. I'm... It's a high. It's a high one. Um... I think you've eight or nine. I don't think ten because we'll come across some really devious people <laughs> who will be the tens. Yes, we will. I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of an eight. I think because we haven't. Well, I suppose we have got detail. Why not a nine? Not sure. Why not a nine? So I'll go for a nine. Why not? Okay. <laughs> uh, I actually think along the same way. I mean, he was using. He was obviously using spies. He wrote about using spies, and that is nothing but intrigue. That's huge. Yeah. Okay. So that's a... How much is that? 17. 17 for Amphibble. What, are you going for 8? Or 9? I went... I went for a 9. Oh, that's 18 then. 18. Oh, yes. Ha! <laughs> Can't add. <laughs> Antiperistasis. Antiperistasis. This is rise and fall. Did they climb or plummet? Yep. I feel that this round is also huge. He had nothing, no inheritance whatsoever. Mm. All he had was a connection as a second cousin of a baron. He had to make his own way in the tournaments and essentially being a mercenary. And he was so good. Actually, we haven't seen this before, have we? Because we've seen people that went up and down and up and down yes. in the past, but not someone who started low and went up. Yeah, he he had nothing. He had the option of being a pauper, 
but he decided to... A water? A pauper. Oh, a pauper. <laughs> so it said a pauper or something. I thought that was some sort of trade. <laughs> he was so good at what he did that at 24, he was leading armies for various royals in Western Europe. They trusted him to be able to win with their troops and other mercenaries. Mm. He was made privy councillor, diplomat, general, lord admiral. He held these positions for two kings, both Henry VII and Henry VIII. And he managed to negotiate the difficult years at the end of Henry VII's reign and remain an important person in the court and the government of Henry VIII, where other new men were executed. Yeah. Polydor Virgil picked him out as one of the leading counselors in his writings. He was to be made a baron and was thought so highly of that when he passed away before he was made a baron, his eldest illegitimate son was made baron in his stead so that that promise was kept. He rose from having absolutely nothing but a name to one of the most influential people of this time, I would argue. A French chronicler called him a hero, for goodness sake, and he was fighting against them. Yeah, no, this is, this, I, I think coming from nothing and getting and reaching the top is more impressive really than having lots, losing it and then getting it back because you, to do that, all you need is the change of regime, isn't it? Yeah. That, that will give you your stuff back. Yeah. Whereas this bloke actually had to work and he did work. <laughs> God knows he worked. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Um, I'm thinking of a nine. I'm trying to work out what you need to do for ten. So am I, because for me it's a ten. Hmm. The only thing that could have made him a ten would have been if he had become king himself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking, I mean, he he was from a noble family, so he didn't come literally from nothing. I was thinking about someone like Thomas Cromwell. Right. Or Woolsey. Yes. Who came from trade. Yes. And quite quite low trade as well. So I think they would be the ten. I'm giving him I'm gonna give him nine. Okay, and that makes sense to me. So I'm gonna follow along with that. So that's eighteen as well. I don't think you can complain about that. No. Martyrdom. Martyrdom. How far were they willing to go? He put absolutely everything on the line and it felt like he was doing that every single day (laughs) yes he rebelled and ended up in exile he then returned and fought for henry who was let's be honest highly unlikely to succeed he then went into so many battles for everybody and instead of other leaders that led from the back we have evidence and respect from his men that he was right there in the battle with them. In fact, one of the reasons he was so feared was because he was in the forefront of the battle. <laughs> he took on so many positions and duties that he never stopped moving. It was exhausting to read him, let alone be him. Yes, it's almost a psychiatric complaint, isn't it? Just He could not say, <laughs> couldn't say no to anything. Yeah. Maybe that is from coming up from from very little you just constantly you you don't say no just in case you you lose everything lose it all yeah yeah i mean it's a different sort of martyrdom i mean i guess he stayed in london when but he had fled but um yes it was a different sort of himself in the lead of risk 
holding commissions in areas where battle would have ensued. Mm. So he's putting himself in harm's way a lot. And I think the only reason he didn't actually die for his beliefs or his convictions is he was good was, at it. <laughs> yeah. If he had been bad at it, he would have been one of those that died. Unless you say he did die for his convictions because you think the French actually did poison him. That seems unlikely to me. I mean, you just come across that all the time, don't you? It's a familiar trope, isn't it? He's yeah. Always, he's, yeah. he's died, even though he's old and decrepit and exhausted. It must yeah. be poison. And there was no inquisition into his mm. death. So... I don't I don't believe that one. Yeah, it's Martyrdom is always a tricky one, isn't it? We've we've had it this really problem is. ever since we started. What we want is a nice person, yeah, a nice person to come along, stand up for their religious rights, be burnt at the stake, bish bash bosh, that's a that's a martyr. But we've come across all sorts yeah. of variations of the theme that well, uh, yeah, I guess it, Martin Luther was a martyr, but he's a political mm. martyr. And essentially, if you have any sort of movement that you kill somebody, they say they become a martyr to that mm. movement or for that movement. So I think he quite gladly would have died doing what he was doing. Well, I think gladly is probably pushing it. But yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> he would yeah. have been willing. I'm going to go for an eight, I think. I think a high. But it's not quite... He's he's probably doing it for other reasons as well. He's not he's not setting himself up. I think to be a martyr, you maybe have to set yourself up for martyrdom. To be a full-scoring sco- full okay. martyrdom. Martyr. Because something okay. plenty did later on, didn't they? They effectively took, took on yeah. martyrdom for their faith. So, Very I think true. eight is yeah, eight. Eight's high. I'm torn between an eight and a nine. I see what you mean, but for how often he went into battle, and the fact that we have notes that he didn't, he actively, physically fought mm. himself. So he was. Right in the thick of it. I think I'm going to have to go okay. for a nine. He didn't die, so he doesn't get a full mark. But yeah, he's not doing too badly at the moment, is he? No, that's a seventeen. B team. B team. This is our posterity round. What did they leave behind that still resonates today? This not so fantastic. No, never heard of that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> No, and when when uh, I mentioned when when you when I pulled him, you'd obviously never heard of him either, and didn't even know he was in the box. <laughs> sort of thing, what <laughs> the hell's that? No, I had no idea who he was. I was like, uh-huh, fantastic. <laughs> but now, oh, I still can't say. Most people would have heard of him. I've got to give him at least one because if you're Irish, you probably heard of him. Yeah. But we can also go with a few of the other things. We mentioned in other people's um, B-team sections what they left for people or did for people Mm. that would have extended beyond their lifetime. So 
We have a record that Pointing sent over 30, it's it's contested whether it's 32 or 35, young men to universities, either clerical or Cambridge or Oxford, and these would be creating new men. He was a patron, so these people Mm. came from nothing and got an education through him. Um, specifically, he was creating new theologians, lawyers, and humanists. Those That was his area of interest where he thought people should be educated. He also worked after their education to provide livings for them. So he didn't just give them education and then leave them. He set them up in their respective area of expertise afterwards. He left money for two religious houses to pay for his and his family's souls in perpetuity. Um, didn't, pointing's activity didn't Stuart last is... as long as he anticipated, sadly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if he saw it coming. Because, I mean, was he at the point where Henry was I don't know. getting rid of the I... monasteries at that point? We don't I know. don't know. I'm not entirely sure when that started, but it was soon. It was very, very soon. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's quite interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pointings acted as steward of Canterbury, and that's referring to uh, the educational point of Canterbury. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they did educating as well, um, but we lack the dates and details for that. We just have a thank you to him for being a good steward for so many years. So he did it for a while. That's one thing I didn't add in because I don't have a start date. I don't have an end date. I don't mm. have any idea of what he did specifically. Um, and this is where we may get those nasty emails and comments. He instituted the Pointing's Law. This provided English control over Ireland for almost 400 years. Not that he knew that he was doing it. No. But it did happen. Yeah, from the Um, the Tudor and Stuart perspective, which is what we're doing, they would have seen that as a good thing. Yes, and if you Google it, if you Google Poynings, that law is everywhere. Everybody's still discussing it. It's taught in universities for governmental law in politics. If you take um, political sciences, they're discussing the Poynings law. Well, now it's a pity we don't know whether it was anything to do with writing it or not, because we can't really give him points for that from just putting his name to it. I know, but I find it hilarious that they call it Poynings Law instead of the statute, mm. since we don't actually know if he wrote it. If you, anybody does want to read it, if you go to the United Kingdom parliamentary site, they have a library section that discusses the entirety of that law and reads it out to you. You can read the whole thing. Um, it's also at the Library of Ireland site and uh, just a multitude of any other political sites this is mentioned. And one thing that I found really cool, Christie's auction, put it up for auction, a letter from Henry VIII to Sir Edward Poynings. It still exists. Mm. And you can find that online. I've got a link for you. Um, It was part of a live auction number 12436 in 2015, and it sold for $13,750 US. I wonder if that's somebody who's particularly interested in Poynings, or just someone who collected everything Henry VIII. Lots of people bid on it, from what I saw. But if I will share my screen so you can see the letter. And that's from Poynings to Henry, is it? That's from Henry to Poynings. Poynings. Can I make it bigger? Yes, we've got the squiggle at the top. That's neat writing. Very nice writing. Hmm. So, 
Okay, we've got good scores on people he helped and institutions he helped, but bad scores on who will have heard of him. He's not he's not a he's not a household name. So I think I might go more or less down the middle and go for a six. Which I think is quite high actually for somebody that most people won't have heard of. Yes. Perhaps I'll go for I'll I, go for five, actually, I think. Go straight down the middle. I want to give him a great deal more just because of how much that statute that he did it was him presenting it and getting it passed, and how many people it affected for centuries. Yes, for good or ill though. Yeah. <laughs> and I suppose is posterity implies good, but it doesn't have to, does it? It just means No, it um, just has to have an effect. Yeah, I mean Ivan the Terrible has would do well in Batim because everybody's heard of him, but he wasn't. He wasn't a terribly nice man. He wasn't a good person. No. no. No wonder Elizabeth decided not to marry him. I think I, I think I'm gonna go for a seven. Okay, I'll stick with six, I think. Okay. So that's that is thirteen. Flaunt of bleeding flaunt. Flaunt a flaunt. This is our portraiture round. Do you have pictures of him? Because I couldn't find any. <laughs> no. <laughs> ah. Oh, well, he's there. not done very well there, is he? Well, there were pictures of him. We do know that he had his portraiture taken, but... So what hmm. we do have is an action figure. Ah. Which one is he? Is he the pointing one? Uh, he's the one in the front with his hand right. pointing forward. Yeah. So not the one with the flag, but the one behind the flag mm. and right in front of the dogs. So it's a group of men. The reason they put pointings with a group of men was because he was so mm -hmm. good at mustering men, apparently. Um, but that is his coat of arms, which incorporates quite a bit of the king's colors. So it's he took on the Tudor colors for his arms, mm -hmm. the green and yeah. the tawny. But that's all we've got. It's now. If anybody Google's him, they're going to be saying, "But there are loads of portraits." Unfortunately, I I couldn't find any that seemed positive. There are so many that are said to be Edward pointings, but they're actually Edward Clinton, the first Earl of Lincoln. They aren't him. We don't actually have anything of it, and we don't even have a description of him. I wonder what they went for with this um, action figure. They just went for a generic, looks a bit like Richard yeah. III. Um, when he's got an action figure, I'll give him two, but he's got nothing else. Okay, I was going to give him a one. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right, actually. One one is okay. one is quite enough. <laughs> so that's a two for flaunt a flaunt. Two, which is one, once yes. we've cut it in half. So, I don't think it's done too badly, apart from we fell, fell down at the flaunt a flaunt. No, that's 67. He is second now. He has bumped Jasper Tudor down. Oh, I think that's fair enough. The ultimate question. Are they too delicious or what? I don't know. I mean, if he'd actually got off his fat ass and done something now again, <laughs> I, might, I might give it to him, but... <laughs> no, I think I think he's worked for it. 
I think he I think he can be too delicious. I'm surprised. I was expecting him to be too delicious, but I was expecting to have to apologise for it. I'm going to go with a yes as well. He gets too delicious. It's about time. (laughs) When you pulled him for me, I thought, oh, great, a nobody. (laughs) (laughs) Then I started reading him. I was like, holy cow. I couldn't imagine having that kind of energy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it must be, he must be doing several jobs every day. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, you hear about Cromwell and you just think, he can't have slept. <laughs> no. But yeah, but, if, but Cromwell wasn't whooshing backwards and forwards across the channel. Yeah, or in battle. What's the song going to be about? That's the question. <laughs> <laughs> Which one? <laughs> what part? <laughs> just turn it into a ping pong song. <laughs> ping pong. I was thinking about the Energizer Bunny, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thump, 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 thump. Right. Do you want to know what you got, who you got next then? Oh, yes, please. Okay. In box, in box. And next time, let me try Next time, you will be doing... Oh, I wanted to do this one. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Sir Richard Empson and Edmund Dudley. It's the baddies. Ooh, the villains. Yes. Well, that's a bit of luck. They're in the book and research I had to pull for Edward Poynings, because they're new men too. Aha, uh-huh. excellent. Yep, no, I was reading about them the other day, and I thought, oh, I hope I get them. <laughs> Never mind. Where were you reading about them? Uh, well, Francis Bacon mentions them quite a lot. Oh, that's cool. I'll have to see if I can find that. Oh, I wonder if this is just going to be people who hate their job, be miserable. Yeah, I don't know. Perhaps they enjoy it. <laughs> they, they might be deliriously happy doing mean things. <laughs> All right, then. Jolly good. All right. Well, that's my next people. And that's the end of our episode on... Sorry, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> Mine went completely blank, then. And that's the end of our episode on Sir Edward Poynings. We hope you've enjoyed it and will join us for the next episode on John DeVere. Thank you for listening. You can find details of the podcast and contact us on In the meantime, away and mock the time with fairest show. False face must hide what the false heart doth know. All is but toys. Goodbye. Something like-
the sea.